The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know, but doesn't have time to tell you. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults. From latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. Welcome. Thanks for listening. How are you, Lindsay? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. It's certainly summer, hot and humid here. It is. We, uh, I've been still making my kids get outside, even though they tell me it's too hot, but we're just turning on the sprinkler and doing it anyway. Yep, it's got, you got to get the sunshine. That's right. That's right. We, we need it here. This week, we get to talk about prostate enlargement. It's going to be a really good episode with a guest um, speaker with us. His name is uh, Dr. Darren Lang. Yeah, Dr. Lang, is, he was born and raised in North Dakota. He trained at Virginia Mason in Seattle and then Emory University for Geriatrics in Atlanta, and he practices internal medicine and geriatrics. He's been in his current practice for 15 years in Fargo, and he does clinic, nursing home, and also does some time as a hospitalist. He, uh, outside of work, is married and has three uh, little boys. And additional um, things that he does within work, he's the chair of internal medicine. He's an associate professor at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Geriatric Fellowship Program. So keeping his time occupied. We're excited for him to come chat with us. Welcome, Darren. Thanks for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. This is exciting. So usually we'll have our guests kind of give a one-liner or just a brief sentence about yourself and kind of things you like outside of work. Wow. Well, Darren Lang. I work for Stanford, and I am an internal medicine and geriatric physician. Um, at work, I enjoy seeing patients in the clinic, and outside of work, Mostly about spending time with my three sons, who basically are full of art projects and outside like sports activities, and that occupies virtually my entire after-work environment. Understandable. Three boys can be pretty busy. Yeah, they uh, they keep me on my toes and definitely keep mom a little crazy once in a while. <laughs> Especially during the summer, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I just saw your son at swimming lessons. Yeah, he. Uh, I'm trying to get him to not plug his nose when he goes under the water but he uh, thinks that's impossible to do, so he doesn't trust me yet. Oh, that's a challenge for several of mine, and it probably took until they were like nine to quit doing it. So okay. he's, he's on track still. Okay, good. Yeah. He looked like he was having fun. Yeah. All right, so today we're talking about uh, lower urinary tract symptoms in men, more commonly known as BPH. Benign prostatic hyperplasia. So let's define those terms first, and then we can kind of get into it a little more. So... BPH is benign prostatic hyperplasia, and the hyperplasia part just means you have an increased number of cells, and out of all the lower urinary tract symptoms, BPH is just one of the causes. There could be other causes too, but for at least for men, um, it's probably one of the most common causes that causes symptoms in the bladder, the urethra, or the prostate that are causing urinary symptoms in patients. So... Where exactly is the prostate? Let's just try to give people an image of that so they understand how it affects the bladder and the causes those urinary symptoms. So 
the bladder drained into the urethra and immediately right below the bladder is this walnut-sized prostate gland. And the urethra goes right through it. And when that gets kind of growth in it uh, from the hyperplasia, then you start having symptoms. Because and it compresses the urethra a little bit. It grows outward and also grows inward. You're right, compressing the urethra. Okay. So who can who is usually affected by prostatic hyperplasia? Well, men is the easy answer. And men in the 60s and 70s are probably the most common patients that get it, but it can happen at a younger age. And at, even at that age, probably 70 to 80% of men are starting to have some sort of symptoms that will have uh, BPH. But also you can also get, you know, due to family history can increase your risk of it. You can get it from obesity or lack of exercise can cause some BPH symptoms. And even for different chronic diseases from diabetes or heart disease can contribute to getting BPH symptoms. Sure. And you mentioned some of those symptoms, but could you just review those and define them a little bit more? So patients that we see in the clinic, by far the most common symptom that I see is they complain of waking up at night. And so we call that nocturia. And that's waking up to go to the bathroom. Absolutely. Waking up, go to the bathroom. You know, one time at night probably isn't too bothersome, but two, three, four times can be definitely an effect on the quality of life. Um, you also get the bladder storage symptoms of frequency or urgency that can happen. And uh, frequency just means going more than what would normally be expected. To go more often or else uh, more frequently, they, they're that they're noticing this is not lasting as long as when they were 30 years old. Right. They could hold their urine for several hours as opposed to maybe two hours or less. I think they notice um, a change in stream force. So when they used to be able to empty pretty quickly with a nice stream force, it's it's less um, strong. And I would ask guys, when they're at the NSU football games and they're standing, going to using the urinal, how many young kids go past them? on the neighboring urinal while they're still standing there waiting and waiting and waiting. So longer to get going to start and then maybe some dribbling afterwards. Yep, that's the hesitancy about getting started and then straining or waiting in between hand if, uh, to urinate and finish emptying your bladder and then often dribbling at the end where you're trying to, thinking you're finished urinating and you're still not quite done yet. I think of it as if you thought of the urethra as a hose and then something kind of squeezing around the outside. So what problems are you going to have? And then you can even have obstruction problems where you're not emptying your bladder very well. And if you get too severe a symptom, this is about the only real severe problem you can have from a BPH, is you can't empty your bladder at all. And then you're having a full bladder, and that's when you need more emergent control of your symptoms. And going to the emergency room for a, for a procedure might be needed. Right, and that can be worrisome because urine can actually back up and cause damage to the kidneys if it gets severe enough. How do you think we decipher um, kind of the prostate symptoms from symptoms that are more like overactive bladder? It gets a little more confusing in guys because some of those symptoms do overlap. For men, an overactive bladder are the same symptoms that women might have, a frequency, urgency, waking up at night. And so when I think of those overlapping between the sexes, it's probably going to be more of an overactive bladder. When you're having a weak stream or a slow stream or having to strain or that intermittency, those are probably more the um, stream issues or the outlet obstructive symptoms that men can get. But the overactive bladder symptoms of 
of going more often or having an urgency to go or waking up at night, they're pretty similar to the overactive bladder. So are there anything that uh, makes these symptoms worse that people should avoid once they start noticing these symptoms? So one of the main worsening contributors is diabetes with having high blood sugars can make you have increased urgency or frequency, um, heart disease, and in particular I think of having swelling in your legs and you go to bed at night and all that fluid has to drain somewhere so it drains back to your kidneys and now you have to wake up at night to remove all that fluid that's draining to your kidneys. Um, other things that we do to ourselves that cause increased urinary symptoms for, is alcohol use. Um, one, due to the increased fluid and two, we usually drink it in the evening before bedtime and then caffeine can be another uh, major contributing factor for frequency and urgency. We also have probably the, we see a lot of are doing medications that can cause problems. And uh, one of the side effects of testosterone can be in a large prostate or make your prostate more enlarged where you're having symptoms, whether you get testosterone from a topical pa uh, patch or, or a gel that you rub on or giving testosterone shots, they can have a side effect of enlarged prostate or in over-the-counter medications for our antihistamines like uh, cold and allergy medicines or decongestants or sleep medications very commonly have this ingredient that causes difficulty for emptying your bladder and cause a lot of urinary retention or slowing of your stream. And it's not uncommon to have people have to go to the emergency department um, when they had some mild symptoms of BPH and then had a cold, so were kind of overdoing the cold meds and then having obstructive symptoms that led them to the emergency department. Yeah, I would say I see it then. Or if people do have a heavy evening of drinking, sometimes they end up in the ER needing their bladder drained after that. Yeah, those medications are, you know, they're good for sleep and they're good for allergies, but for older men, they could really cause a lot of problems with their, with their prostate and their bladder. So what are some common misperceptions about prostatic enlargement? You know, most commonly patients come in, there's two prostate issues. One's the prostate cancer and the enlarged prostate, the BPH. And those two are not really related at all, although some of the symptoms can be similar. Um, enlarged prostate does not cause or contribute to having prostate cancer. Another thing I hear from patients periodically is having is sex increase your risk or lack of sex having increased risk of having it. And I can maybe not necessarily give them the answer they want to hear, but the lack of sex or having sex probably is not going to contribute to having a large prostate or their prostate cancer either. And probably another medic, another procedure that is done commonly in this age group is having colonoscopies. And they say, oh, you don't need to, you don't need to check my prostate. I just had a colonoscopy. And I usually inform them that the physician doing the colonoscopy did not check for prostate cancer or check for enlarged prostate. And those probably not related to the colonoscopy procedure. Right. It would be pretty unlikely that the uh, gastroenterologist would pay any attention to the prostate unless it was very enlarged and they were unable to pass the scope. And that's probably relatively unlikely to happen. Right. Yep. So how would, um, if you had some of these symptoms and presented to your physician or your doctor, how might we go about diagnosing this? Well, the, the best thing is a good clinical history and asking your, your patient what kind of symptoms they're having. And 
one questionnaire that you commonly see is a seven questionnaire by the American Urologic Association. And it's questions asked in the last month, how many, how many times have you had the nocturia or the frequency and the urgency? And that can give us a little bit of a guide as to the severity of your prostate symptoms. Um, so good clinical history is really important. Uh, another thing that usually we should consider anyways is a, a urine test to make sure we're not missing something else. And also you can even check a PSA for checking to see the prostate volume. And there's definitely some debate regarding the PSA for at least prostate cancer screening. Um, but the PSA can have some benefit for helping support or not support your diagnosis of BPH. And tell me more about that. So we know, or many people are aware anyway, that an elevated PSA can correlate with prostate cancer. What about an elevated PSA in the setting of BPH? I can honestly tell you, I probably don't check the PSA only just for looking for an enlarged prostate. But if I have a seven-year-old patient who has a PSA, which can be an indicator of the prostate volume, if that PSA is relatively low in that seven-year-old man and it's at one, well, his prostate volume is pretty pretty low and he's probably not going to be having BPH. So I think thinking of what Lindsay mentioned of the overactive bladder is possibly more likely cause of his symptoms. If his PSA at age 70 is four or five, which might be normal for prostate cancer, but it's a rel- indicating a relatively large volume, there's probably a higher likelihood that his he's having some BPH occurring in his body. Sure. And then finally, which we don't, I used to do a, many rectal checks, and this is a one part of my exam that I think I've got a lot of satisfaction by stopping to do, is the digital rectal exam. And I don't do that routinely, but if somebody comes with new symptoms, or especially a really change in their urinary symptoms, doing a rectal exam to feel the prostate, to feel if it's greater than, bigger than a walnut size, or if it's more lumpy or nodular than it should be, can be a good indicator of, of if they're having BPH symptoms. And so if you do, if you're able to verify a diagnosis of BPH, what are the next steps? The next steps are asking you, is it bad enough to be treated? And starting a medication is an easy thing to do, but not always necessarily the first option for treating it. Usually, just going through some lifestyle changes can probably make the biggest effect. And we mentioned some of the causes, and cutting down fluids after supper uh, can really help. Probably the most annoying symptom of waking up at night to urinate. Uh, so stopping any water or alcohol after supper can have a really a positive benefit for that nighttime waking up. Um, also, during the daytime, if you're having urgency or frequency, either stopping coffee or, or cutting back on coffee or caffeine. I usually tell patients, just get rid of the caffeine entirely and then find out where you're at. And then if you desperately need that caffeine jolt in the morning, go ahead and restart it if you can at least figure out how much is that caffeine contributing to your urinary urgency in the daytime. That's a good idea. I think a lot of people do find that caffeine affects them. And so Cutting back even a degree may provide some benefit, but finding that baseline um, at least lets them know how much it's impacting them. And then, like we mentioned earlier as well, I think looking at medication that you're on and talking to your physician to making sure you're not doing something that might contribute to your enlarged prostate symptoms as well, whether it's medication you're taking, should at least be discussed with your physician. 
Absolutely. And so beyond lifestyle um, changes, is there anything else that we can do? So there's only about two medications, maybe three medications that we sometimes prescribe for prostate symptoms. One's a class of medications called alpha blockers. They were great blood pressure medicines years ago, and people were finally like, gosh, it helps my blood pressure, but it really helps me not wake up as often at night. So now we probably use them more often for enlarged prostate. And these alpha blockers are um, doxazosin or tamsulizin that can be great to help relax the smooth muscle in the urethra so you actually can empty your bladder better and hopefully not have that retention or have a better stream if you have a weak stream. And they work relatively quickly to get a information if it's helpful for you or not. And definitely these medications can be helpful. Are there side effects that people need to look out for with them? That's a good question. And for the most part, they're well tolerated, especially the newer versions. Some of the older versions of it can have some dizziness or lower your blood pressure too much where you get lightheaded or dizzy or even have falling down because you're too dizzy as well. And that's probably the most common side effect. If um, that medication is working some but not not satisfactorily for the patient, um, what else can we do? Well, I think the, the nice thing about those medications are usually in a week or two weeks, you can at least tell if there's some benefit to it. But you're right, if it's not helping you enough and you want to either exchange or probably even add to that medication, there's another class of medications called 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. And these are the medications that they don't affect the smooth muscle like the other ones do, but they do shrink your prostate or at least have your prostate not enlarge in size quite a much, as much. And this group of medications, it's nice because it actually shrinks the prostate, but it's it takes probably one, two, three months to shrink it enough where you're going to be able to tell if it's going to help your symptoms or not. So it's not always my first choice to use because of the, the delayed benefit from it, but it does have some benefit for the uh, improving your symptoms with time. So it's one that you just kind of have to stick with and wait and see. Absolutely. Okay. And this one does have some other side effects that you, you, that you can see. And most commonly, this is an ejaculatory issue um, after sex or during sex that patients can notice that can be bothersome to some people. And another side effect which men don't care too much about is it can cause some hair growth as well. Sure. Yeah, most, most don't complain about that. Some even welcome it. Sure. And so when you're seeing patients with these symptoms and you've gone through the medications and the lifestyle things, at what point do you um, send them to a urologist and get our specialists involved? You know, I think that's a good question. I think there's other, when they come back and we try these medications and we see if they're helping or not helping. The first, if they're not helping enough, we want to consider a urologist. I think the first thing that we can do is at least talk to the patient and find out do we have the right diagnosis in the first place? You know, maybe, maybe this is more overactive bladder, or if we're having a difficult time emptying our 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 bladder when we're urinating, you know, maybe there's more an obstructive cause that we're not realizing. So I think looking at make sure we, we're identifying the right cause for uh, these symptoms, and if if that's not the case, then looking at other medication options. If we really do think it is enlarged prostate, or if we want to at least have a further workup, send it to a urologist to look at some urine flow studies, and that can be very helpful to identify if these symptoms are prostate or if they're overactive bladder or other cause of what's going on as well. 
Good. That's really helpful. Yeah. I think, um, you know, these symptoms can have a huge impact on quality of life for patients. And it's not something that we've necessarily addressed well in the past. Um, maybe it's because men aren't as forthcoming about what symptoms they're having, but, um, it's something that's kind of, it's, it's an issue that's not uncommon. Yeah, you know, that's a good, that's a good point. A lot of men just don't bring up their urinary symptoms. So unless you're really asking them and you just start that only once a night, then twice a night, and then three or four times a night. So it's not a, it's a gradual thing for them. And they might think this is kind of, this is normal too. So I think at least making them aware that there are some options available. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, um, actually not too long ago was discussing meeting with a patient and he was having some urinary symptoms. This is after a procedure, so a little different, but just brought up the point that, um, you know, when men do need to use products like Depends or whatever for dribbling, restrooms are really not set up for that, to handle that situation for men. And it's, it's something that had not occurred to me before, but I think we kind of fail our male population in that area. Yeah, I think most men or women wearing a Depends or some other type of pad is to the point where at least talking about options just due to the quality of life and that can often mean some isolation in their home or missing out on other events or even traveling because they know that there's not enough bathrooms around available for them when they have to go and that urgency is a pretty common symptom that people have too. Absolutely yeah it's a really um, impactful problem. I have a lot of patients that come in and ask about over-the-counter supplements that they can use for this and I know in our country that we don't promote the um, over-the-counters to as compared to some European countries, but there is one product called Saw Palmetto that is available. I think the evidence for it is relatively lacking, but it probably has maybe some benefit. Maybe, I can't say that for sure, but I think if people are interested in, in the natural product, Saw Palmetto, and usually some most medications, most vitamins have that act, that ingredient in there um, for any prostate medications. And whether it helps or not, I can't say for sure, but it's an, something relatively safe to try if they're interested. Right. I think the biggest thing there is that it's considered relatively safe. So yes. at least they're not doing harm by taking that supplement. Of course, it's always good to talk with your doctor and or pharmacist about any interactions with other medications too. Absolutely. Then I think sending to the urologist to at least look at do further tests or urine flow studies are needed? And then if the medications have been tried and they still feel this is from an enlarged prostate, and then just talking about the, the next steps, and that could be a procedure or surgery um, to help reduce the prostate size or at least help with the um, symptoms of the urethra and doing a scope in there to possibly checking to see if there's some stricture or something else that's causing some of these um, dribbling or this inability to empty your bladder. Yeah, so I think just as a general overview, we usually start with the lifestyle modifications when somebody comes in with these concerns. If that's not enough, medication can be added. Um, reviewing the diagnosis to make sure that we hopefully have the correct one. And then if symptoms are still really problematic, sending to urology. Is that generally your your routine? Yeah, I think that's good. And I think most urologists would be very happy if they have that much done beforehand and the patient will at least have tried the main medications that are available and they're both relatively safe medicines to be, to use as well for those two classes of medicines that they're I think well worth trying for patients who are bothered by these by these symptoms. Absolutely. I think 
patients or people out there who are suffering from these symptoms should bring it, don't hesitate to bring it up to your physician because there's, there are things we can do to improve your quality of life. Yes. You know, I, I was looking at part of a conversation, we talked about the, the PSA for the uh, prostate cancer screen. And like, like we mentioned earlier, you know, this, I think there's some variability as to who should get the PSA or if we should even do them at all. And I'm sitting with two other physicians here who probably have different views of mine. Um, but often when people do check some PSAs, but I think the, the evidence is really lacking. And is it done for the enlarged prostate? You know, it can be helpful, but for prostate cancer screening, you know, there's, there's some debate regarding it. I'm not sure what your guys' thoughts are on, are on PSA blood tests. Yeah, I think the, um, the best research that we have is pretty weak in terms of actually seeing a benefit for outcomes. So when we screen for something, we want to have a better outcome when we make the diagnosis. And checking PSA has not necessarily led to improved outcomes with prostate cancer. I think the biggest problem is you can have falsely normal results and you can have falsely high results that maybe are just because of BPH, not cancer. And then people end up going through procedures and testing and things that they may not need. And I think we found out from checking annually just that, that we were diagnosing these cancers and having radical procedures done that then left um, people incontinent and having other issues that affect quality of life. Um, And from the research we've done, we found that that cancer that we did something drastic about probably would have never caused them a problem in their lifetime. Right. It sounds like, you know, I think with patients getting older in their 70s, um, I think stopping it at that age is probably a very reasonable. I think there's some debate between ages of 50 or 55 and 70 if PSAs have that value to check it every year or two or three. And I am, have, I'm torn regarding it, and some patients are adamant about it, and I understand that. And I, I agree with, with Lindsay and Kirsten that if we do check the PSA and go through those further testing that can definitely cause some anxiety and stress for patients if there is an abnormality. It might be a false positive abnormality, but it doesn't dismay the idea that anxiety and stress do occur when you have a test that might indicate that you have cancer. And that can be a stressful thing for people to do too, even though it's a false positive. I think what I generally do is is have the discussion, but I have not been checking annual uh, PSAs for for prostate cancer screening. Um, I often like to have a baseline, and if it's been three or four years, um, and I will agree to check, um, even if there's no symptoms, if that makes um, the the patient I'm talking with feel more comfortable. Having talked about everything we just did about the false positives and and so on, so I definitely am not uh, encourage, uh, encouraging annual for screening. Certainly, when you come with symptoms, that's a, that's a different story. Right, I agree. I think if patients are symptomatic, then their physician needs to consider checking a PSA. Um, and the decision for whether or not to screen and how often is really a discussion between the patient and their physician. Yeah, and I think it's the, the blood test itself is the easy part. It's those conversations of what do you do after the, with the results that all of a sudden gets 
more problematic for the patient and the physician as to now do we do. Exactly. So. Yeah, definitely, definitely worth a conversation with your physician. If you have questions about that or you think you may be having symptoms, um, you know, consult with your doctor and see what, what the right um, next steps are for you. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Darren. This has been really uh, great information and really helpful. I think it's good to um, bring up some of these discussions that people are, you know, topics that people don't necessarily want to discuss on a regular basis, but they're certainly issues that affect many of our patients. So thanks for helping us out today. Absolutely. Anytime we can help with uh, something that you can treat without medications or even treat with medication, I think it's a good conversation to have. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank Have you. a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye. And do we have any topics for a health pearl this week? Yeah, I think this week I wanted to talk about the value of play on our health. And play, something as simple as playing a game, playing outside, running around, something that makes you laugh and smile. It adds a lot of value to our health. I think so. And kids, children do it naturally. Um but I think somehow we lose that when we get older and we forget to play or how to play. I agree. I think, um, you know, not only playing things like just building Legos with my kids, but recently I've, they've been begging me to play capture the flag with them every evening after supper. And we go out in the backyard and when it's hot, we turn on the sprinkler and we chase each other around the yard. And not only is it really fun and we end up laughing and giggling, but it's a great workout too. We're not sitting around, we're moving and sprinting. And some days I'll be sore the next day because of it. So it's it's really fun. And this weekend, I think one way I played uh, with my kids was um, we were out on the pontoon and we went out into the, the deep end and anchored up and we all, you know, did... Um, dives or flips and um cannonballs and can you know all those things and we were raiding each other so i think that's how we played this weekend yeah and i think you know if you're somebody who has kids they're an easy way to play like Lindsay said they kind of play naturally and it's how one way that they learn and build build um flexible thinking and so it's a it's a good thing for us to do too if you don't have kids though that doesn't mean you can't play um, you know, just getting outside. Lindsay, you were saying you saw at a nursing home one time they had set up a slip and slide and carefully they were doing right. this very carefully with their residents. They, yeah, they had set up a great kind of chair that they the staff had pulled along the slide and it, they were just having the best time. These residents who, you know, probably haven't done something like that in years were just smiling and laughing and having the best time and and uh, another thing I recently saw on the, the internet was um, an older couple who were the gentleman was pushing his wife on on the swing and it, that they just looked like they were having the greatest time, um, but not something you see often, but we really should because I think that that feeling that it probably gave them will last them days. Absolutely. Absolutely. Playing can come in so many different forms and again, has so much health value that it's a great thing. So even if you don't think you have a reason to play or have access, just go do something, you know, like we've talked about before, maybe something that's a little weird for you or doesn't feel normal, but that's okay. It's, it can be really fun too. Yep. Outside the box and exciting and adventurous. Just be safe while you're doing it. Right. Great. Well, thanks so much for listening this week. 
Um, hope you all enjoyed this. If you have feedback or comments, we'd love to hear them. You can email us at mail at everythingdoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G dot C-O-M. You can also listen to us on Google Play or Apple Podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook at Everything Doc or Twitter, Everything Doc One. Have a great week. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.